Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Nanjala Nayabola, author of the new book Travelling Wild Black, essays inspired by life on the move. And in conversation with the award-winning journalist Yusra Elbagar, they explored what travel and migration tell us about race, identity, politics and culture. It's a really fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it, you can find out more about Nanjala's book in the episode description. Now, let's go to the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Yusra al-Baqir. I'm delighted and very happy to introduce you to our guest tonight, Nanjala Nayabola, a writer, political analyst, and activist. She's authored books including Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya, and the new book out today, Traveling While Black, Essays Inspired by Life on the Move. Nanjala, we have been Twitter friends for years. We have never formally met in person. So this is as close as it gets to like a very intimate conversation with us. Nanjala, I mean, this is a very personal book for you. And, you know, as an academic, as a human rights lawyer, you've, you know, been in situations where it's been about the people that you're helping. It's been about the people that you're working with. How did it feel to really dig in and and start sort of analyzing and reflecting on your own experiences and then decide to share that in this book? You know, it was it was a difficult process. And writing about yourself, putting yourself in the narrative is such a point of vulnerability. And it's it, you feel raw and you feel exposed. And um, in a way in which we're kind of discouraged from doing, you know, as writers, as lawyers, you're like, you know, take yourself out of the equation. It's all about, you know, the story and it's all about the event. And so, you know, it was tough. I think the thing that helped is that the essays sort of have a long arc. You're talking about at least 10 years of life, 12 years of life. So there was a, there was a, at least it was like a ramp that I was sort of leading myself up towards the culmination of it and towards the really deeply personal stuff. And some of the stuff was very cathartic and was necessary to sort of unpack what was going on with myself and with the situations that I had been in. But yeah, it was, it was not easy. Uh, it was a very dramatic change of gear and I, I'm not, I can't say with confidence that I'm going to do it again. <laughs> you should. But I mean, when, what was the moment where you felt, I'm, because I know that you didn't write this chronologically and you didn't write this initially, these essays with the intention of putting them out in a book. So what was the point where you decided, okay, I'm going to compile these essays and I'm going to put it out under, under this title? About two years ago. So just before I went to Nepal, I had been sort of exploring the idea of, 
I'm getting older, my patterns of travel are changing, my, you know, outlook on life is changing. And I want to sort of look back on the last 10 years and, and put it together in a way that makes sense and maybe is helpful for other people. And in fact, that book was, was going to be, you know, when I write about the essay about Bessie Head, that book was supposed to sort of also flow from that. It was supposed to be a book that kind of closes this 10 year arc, um, 10 year chapter. And then as, as the book started to evolve as an anthology and sort of putting things in, taking things out, the world was also changing. So we had this uptick in the Black Lives Matter movement and we had this uptick. And in, in Kenya as well, you know, we had all of these big transformations. Uh, Nairobi has gone through so many transformations since the 2017 election. And a different story started to emerge, which is, yes, you can still be at the center of the book. But I think it's also important to bring the world into this conversation. So what is happening in the world that is changing, that is transforming? And um, I had wanted to close a couple of chap- personal life chapters and open a couple of personal life chapters. As I say in the introduction, it's kind of like a farewell to 10 years of trying to work in the human rights refugee migration space and not really being able to make peace with the way in which the space was structured. Not Imagine working in a place where racism is so overt and you can't name it. You can't say, you know, actually it's racist to allow boats, you know, to, to collapse and die, to capsize and die because the people who are on them are black. And so it was, it was really that 2017 moment was like, maybe this is a different book. Maybe all of these essays that I had been collecting, the reason why they hadn't come out yet was because there was a different book in there that just needed time to come into its own. Yeah. I mean, you say, you declare in the foreword, you know, I'm, I'm a traveler. I'm not a race theorist. I'm not a social scientist. I'm a traveler. But how do you feel like your background, your professional background, influenced how you approach travel and how you reflected on travel? Mm. The professional background was really important because I've had a very fish-out-of-water experience with professions, with trying to be a lawyer, with, you know, working in advocacy, working in all of those spaces. I mean, let me just talk about the law in practice. You know, how many lawyers do you see with afros, with natural hair? How many lawyers do you see? I was the only black woman in my first year section. So we, the class has 550 people and you're divided into sections of about 80, 85 people. And this was at, this was at Harvard. This was at Harvard. I was the only black woman in my section. And you know, there was this, that was like the constant of the whole thing, trying to do all the different types of practice. Even when we went to Haiti to do this advocacy, I was the only black woman in the group. And so it was, it's this constant fish out of water experience as a traveler, as a, a person who's in a profession where you're not the default, that forces you to look at things in really relief like things just become really stark like it's like a chiaroscuro everything is contrasted and you see things that other people who don't have to constantly reflect on their personhood and their place you see things that they might miss you see things that they might think are throwaway points but are actually a little bit more rooted in the systemic things so like when I talk about refugee protection I mean anybody who's worked in this space will tell you the racism is there both in the professional structure both in the way in which the advocacy is conducted. Very few people 
I would probably even say 0.1% of the people who work in this space would actually come out and say, that's racist. That's actually a racist policy. Again, I go back to the Mediterranean Sea. You know, how does a government rationalize allowing, so far this year, I think it's been 1,500 people children, babies, to just die. Governments that are on, ostensibly, they're telling us, you know, we're the wealthiest governments in the world. But look at how the organizations that are in charge, that are, you know, leading up the, the, the advocacy conversation, look at what they're saying. You know, you may have Sea-Watch is an outlier. Sea-Watch is one of the rare NGOs that's actually saying this is racist. This is a Black Lives Matter pro issue. And the captain in the Sea-Watch gets arrested, you know, and gets charged <laughs> with all sorts of things. So how dare you? you how yeah, dare how you? How dare you speak to how, say what it is? You yeah. know, how dare you? Um, Chinua Chebe has this thing that he wrote in Things Fall Apart where he says, an, an old woman is always nervous when dry bones are mentioned in her, in her presence. And the idea is basically that mm. if a person is something and is, is, knows that there's something going on and you name it, then they get uncomfortable. They're like, oh, wait. Mm. Yeah. You can't name yeah. that in here. You have to go somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah. it just... But I feel like racism, the survival of racism is contingent on its denial. Mm -hmm. If you can't articulate it, if you don't articulate it, then you can't do anything about it. It's always just going to be this shadow that's looming large. And I think for me, the reason why I felt empowered to be able to name it was because I knew that I was trying, I wasn't going to go back to this space that I was sort of saying goodbye to this as a professional space, definitely going to continue with my advocacy and my activism, but freeing myself of that thing that happens where you feel like you have to make yourself small to get the professional advantage so that my peers like me, so that my boss likes me, so that freeing myself of that intellectually said, you know, yeah, yeah, it's going to make myself palatable to power. And you free yourself of that and you're like, actually... I can say things that maybe other people might not be empowered to. So, I mean, you addressed this in the foreword, which you, you wrote post-corona, which is how coronavirus has basically caused us to all look at movement in a new way. And I think that's mostly for people who are used to moving freely and have the privilege of moving freely are now suddenly like, wait a minute, I can't fly to whatever for my weekend away. But what do you think the pandemic has done for your thoughts on movement and your analysis of, of the monopoly on movement? That's a fantastic question. This is the longest single block of time that I've spent in one place for 15 years, maybe 16 years. This is the longest that I've been in the same town for about 15 years. And it's, it's been, it's had, it's been both sides. There's, there's, there's been good and there's been bad. I mean, the, the, the difficulty has been seeing my hometown and in a new light and seeing the challenge. Cause when you live somewhere, as opposed to flying in and flying out and flying in and flying out, you have to deal with the daily grind of realizing, for example, that there are no pavements left in Nairobi. And the, the, you know, there's no streetlights left in Nairobi, which means as a woman, you can't be out at night and things like that. Yeah. I think in the global sense, what is really brought home is how much we had taken for granted, most of us in the world who have privilege, had taken for granted the idea of movement, of being able to just buy a plane ticket. And for those of us who come from countries with what are called 
so-called weak passports, we are probably more conscious of it than most. But I remember, for example, when South Africa put the UK and the US on their banned traveler list and said, you know, you can't come because of the coronavirus. I There were people that I was talking to who were like, I don't understand this. <laughs> like, I can't, <laughs> I can't actually process this. What do you mean I can't go to South like, Africa? <laughs> like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. go. It's like, like, what? Welcome, welcome <laughs> to the world of weak passports, you know? of, of restricted movement. And you remember when there was an Ebola outbreak, uh, the last big um, international Ebola outbreak, yeah. not this last one in the DRC. And it was in Liberia and it was in yeah. uh, Guinea-Bissau. And we had travel restrictions on Kenyans. And we had travel restrictions on Ma- Ma- Malagasy people. And we had travel restrictions on most African countries. And so it's not the practice that people were struggling with. It's the identity of the people who were being banned that they were struggling with. And it was a moment. It's it's sort of tapered out um, because, you know, the... the we default to the mean. We go back to the thing that, you know, we've been told this is how migration should be organized. But there was definitely a way, at least, you know, the first half of this year, this 2020, this moment of you have to confront the fact that these restrictions and these ideas of where diseases come from, where they go, who is a good traveler, who is not a good traveler. Targeted. It's targeted. It's not just about policy and bureaucracy. There's something else going on there. And um, it's part of the reason why I thought, you know, I got to write about, I have to put this in because it's, it's such a great example of all of these things that I'd been thinking about in more abstract ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the first essay of the book, you talk about going to Haiti and being called white and, you know, Obviously, and you mentioned Sudan, and, 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 and I was thinking, I was like, you know, Sudan is probably the best example of whiteness as a concept of privilege, as a synonym for privilege, as opposed to actual skin tone, and, and mm-hmm. blackness being, you know, a synonym for, for being ostracized or oppressed or subjugated. You know, how did it affect you? Was that the first time that you felt white privilege or that you felt like you were being seen through the prism of, of privilege yeah. and whiteness. It was the first time that it had been so consistent. You know, when you show up with a measure of privilege in any context, people are always like, if I, if I, enter, if I enter a place as, you know, a professional, like I'm, I'm entering this place as a lawyer and I'm in rural, you know, Bukavu and I'm, I'm doing whatever, there's always a measure of privilege and always a measure of power. But Haiti was the first time that it was so consistent. And... Partly it was, you know, my accent with the French, because uh, apparently I have a weird... I, I can't hear it, but then... <laughs> people who speak French... Denial. <laughs> people who speak French tell me that I, I have a weird a- French accent or like a very textbook, you know, like... Because you learn from yeah, the textbooks, yeah, yeah. right? So this is how you pronounce yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, very formulaic. Exactly. It's like, this is how you pronounce this word. Um but it was the first time that it was so consistent. It was the first time that it was so overtly said to your face that you are blanc, you are white, you have this privilege. I, it was so weird. Like I say in the chapter, I was reading Toni Morrison purely coincidentally, purely just like 
I'd just gotten a Kindle and it was up there and I thought, ooh, I'm going to read Playing in the Dark. But it, it layered over with this experience and really got me thinking about this constructions of whiteness and the constructions of blackness. And then sort of seeing that again in different contexts afterwards, like, you know, going to the Czech Republic, which was actually, that was prior to that. But in the Czech Republic, because they're Roma people, you know, mm. uh, black people are not at the bottom of the totem pole, if you will. Like Roma people mm. in Central Europe really, and Western Europe really mm, get really, bad. really terrible. And it's so systemic and it's so normalized. And um, people don't even think that it's racist. They just, they, they don't even admit to that. So it was weird. I felt like it gave me a lens through which to start to think about this as a social construction and having to say that over and over again to denounce that foreignness, say, you know, I'm actually here as an African. I'm actually here as, you know, a comrade. It was a really interesting experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was really, what I felt was mirrored to me was this position that you had on this spectrum of either invisibility or black exceptionalism. <laughs> and it's something that I, you know, I experience when I travel as well. It's like, I'm an invi- I was just in Brazil and it was mm-hmm. like, I was invisible because they thought I was Afro-Brazilian. But as soon as I spoke English, they're like, oh, you're a foreigner, <laughs> you're American. And then they were really too much. So it's, how did you navigate that? And how, like, because it, it's very uncomfortable, you know, it's like, oh, I don't exist until you suddenly see that I'm privileged and now I exist. Yeah. Was was Haiti the first time or is that something that you've noticed just because you've been in these spaces and you've been, you know, you're, you're incredibly um, successful. Mm. So how do you navigate that in general? You know, I wish I could tell you that I found the perfect formula and I figured it out. Um, but I haven't. I think the thing that I've learned is how to manage my frustration and how to manage my confusion, if you will, around it. Because Haiti, about I was in Haiti end-to-end for about two and a half months. And about six weeks in, I had a minor breakdown. <laughs> there, mm, I write about it yeah. in, the, in the chapter. I had a breakdown because it was... But it was a lot of traumatic content yeah. that you were dealing with. It's very heavy. It was so heavy and it was and I was I felt like I was having this experience that I couldn't explain to anyone. Like I couldn't articulate to anybody the fact that I could either disappear completely or be hyper visible and not be able and not for a reason that could be easily, you know, pinpointed and said, well, it's because you're doing this and it's because you're doing that. Because I had my Afro and I was, you know, and I, but it turned out that the Afro was part of it because the Afros are not really mm. part of mainstream. They're graded. You know what yeah, I mean? They're graded. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I wish I could say that I, I figured it out. The thing that I, I would say is that I, I learned how to navigate the breakdowns and I learned yeah. how to give myself permission to yield to the pressure and to be abstract from it and to take it as a point of learning and a point of growth and a point of, of becoming bigger as a human being. And I, I, I think that for a lot of Black women, especially, this is the context that I know best, we have so much pressure to 
be one way or be the other way. So you were talking about, for example, be exceptional, be not exceptional, you know, blend in, stand out. And there's so yeah. much pressure, be, yeah. you know, and, and, and a lot yeah. of us be just, dominant or be completely obedient. Like, yeah, it's always one extreme to the other. And it's so rarely just be happy, be free, mm. be joyful, be yourself, be yourself. And so for me, the, the navigating it, if there is any, was giving myself permission to be that, to be frustrated and to be confused and to not have all the answers, to not be always be on, to not always be hashtag black girl magic, but to be human and be vulnerable and be present. Yeah. I mean, because you face that again with, you know, when you mentioned the good immigrant thing, because that is that's the same thing. It's it's exceptionalism. It's, oh, no, I deserve a visa because I'm, you know, well established. And I'm this. And how do we like I always find myself thinking, how do I actually, you know, because everyone deserves mm -hmm. to be treated well. How do we subvert that system? Because obviously it benefits us. Yeah. As well, if you are privileged and if you are, you know, well positioned, it benefits you. So how do we kind of topple that? Yeah, I think it's really important when you have privilege of any kind to use it for other people who don't have it, to seed it and to be willing to renounce it if it's that's what's necessary. And the 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 experience that you're talking about, I mean, I'm sitting at a mall in Nairobi being yelled at by a political consul, uh, a consul at the embassy. And I want to start to yell back. I want to say, oh my gosh, look at my degrees. Look at my professional life. Look at all of my accomplishments. How dare you treat me this way? But then... Nobody should be treated that way. Nobody should have their travel status arbitrarily withdrawn on a completely made up reason just because that power has, that person has the power to do that. And I think that was really one of those moments where I, I had had this ideology in my head about, you know, free movement and, there is no such thing as a good immigrant. There is no such thing as a bad. And it's, 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 just, it's like, it's like, it's such a nice idea. But here was a moment where I was like, okay, but are you ready to walk the walk? Are you ready to actually say, put rubber to the road and say, I'm not going to defend myself by listing all of these things. And it was hard. It was uncomfortable because the thing about privilege is it works. Yeah, it works. You you drop the right name. Yeah, the, it, it works. And so it was just it was just really uncomfortable, unpleasant. But I think a necessary test of all of these abstract ideas about yeah. equality. And that's one thing that I, I want people to take away from this is equality is hard. And we shouldn't stop. That doesn't mean we stop trying for equality that just means that we move with the knowledge that those of us who have privilege are going to lose something and that's okay yeah, it's redistribution yeah and it's okay because you're better off when all of us have than some of us have and some of us don't yeah yeah i mean that ties 
very well into the next thing that I want to ask you. There's this line that I keep thinking about and it really struck me, which is, you know, how can we get rid of the colonial state or the legacy of the colonial state when there are so many Africans still feeding off the carcass? And how, you know, you lay out so much empirical evidence and, and so many social political factors that hinder this dream of pan-Africanism and a, and a singular African identity. You know, do you see a future? And I, and I hate these questions because it's like, I don't have the answer, right? But do you see at least a roadmap to a future when as a community we can dismantle these internalized prejudices that we now sort of use to kind of one-up each other within communities of color, within African communities? I think that I'm inspired by the generational shifts that's happening. And I'm inspired by the conversations that people are having today that even 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we weren't really having. So one place in Kenya, for example, where this tension plays out is in policing and how poor people are policed. And when I moved back to Nairobi six years ago, if a young man got shot in the street, the newspapers would say he was a thug. And people would accept that, say, yes, he was a thug. He was a criminal. The cops were doing the right thing. In the last five years, suddenly we're seeing people say, where is the proof? Where's the proof that this kid was a thug? Because we Kenya has on record, and this I have to say on record because there are countries that don't keep good statistics, don't keep good data. But the, of the countries that do keep data, we have the highest number of police killings in sub-Saharan Africa. Most of the people that are killed by the police are young men. And we've had cases whereby the cops have said this guy is a thug and it turns out that the guy was a student who had refused to pay a bribe. And the shift that I've seen in the last six years gives me hope because there's a generation that is looking at the notion of independence with a critical eye and that they're saying that it's not enough that our president is black and it's not enough that our president is an African. We also want to live in peace and we also want to live in just societies. And you see what's happening with Uganda this week, with Tanzania last week, with, you know, like all across the continent, there's this jet, we are the youngest continent in the world. These kids yeah. don't care about, you know, Robert Mugabe giving 20 minute speeches in at the UN. <laughs> Who care? No. Yeah. Bob Mugabe, I haven't eaten in two days. <laughs> I don't care yeah, about your, yeah. your theories. It's the ivory tower. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what gives me hope that I think we just have to keep giving people the information, young people, especially, but people in general, the information, the tools, the space to be able to rationally separate or make sense of what it means to be free. And I think Franz Fanon has this amazing thing where he said, are we, are we only fighting for independence, which is a noble goal, or are we thinking about what we will do when the last white policeman leaves? And I think that second part is what we really didn't give ourselves space to do. And now we have to do it. We have to start thinking, what does freedom for Africans in Africa look like? Yeah. 
What is sovereignty? What is sovereignty? What is justice? You know, how does, how does that look? And, and I think we're going to get there. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And in terms of discourse which I think is something that you touch on throughout the book. It was interesting to read your feelings about the word tribe, but it's, it's a combination, right? It was historically what the word tribe represents in terms of colonial categorization, but also what it feels like to a Kenyan who's had to experience, you know, tribal clashes, mm -hmm. as the media calls it, and how it's such a, a proponent of divide and conquer rule. How can we get off this grid of discourse? Because it's not only how, it doesn't only shape how we define ourselves, but also the gaps in the discourse undermine our experiences. Because so only now are we seeing words like code switching, gaslighting become common vernacular and able to describe the experiences that we have. So is the key to create words that translate our experiences with power in order to offset the words that sort of diminish our existence? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think we have to start developing a, a lexicon or vernacular that reflects who we are. And, and that's why I really wanted to have that chapter in there because I did, I studied African studies in undergrad and in grad school. And I would get that tribal clashes, tribalism, tribal clashes, tribe, tribalism, da, 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 da. and it would just be like someone you're know, poking me in the, in the back with like a sharp knife over and over and over again. Because it's such a violent word, you know, and it's such a loaded word. And I really, that is one of the older essays because I really wanted, I spent so much time thinking about this thing and, and, and landing exact, landing exactly where you concluded, which is maybe we just need new words that capture what it feels like rather than what other people who don't live here, who don't walk in our shoes, interpret and, 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 you know, project, even project, project that this is what the tribe is, this is what the ethnic group is. And 
it's the main, you know, that is one of the chapters that is the reason why I chose not to write a purely academic book. Because you, there's no room for academia in academia for a, you know, 1500, 2000 word essay about how it feels. How does it feel to be part of this community? How does it feel to be part of this ethnic group? Like that's, it's like, that's, you're supposed to talk about, you know, sterile things and things like that. But when you think about how it feels, I mean, you start to see things a little bit more nuanced. I wonder if you ask some you know, people say have narratives about what it means to be Somali and things like that. And I was like, what if you ask Somali people about how they how they see themselves? You know, do they see themselves as part of this you know, greater nation state. Do they see themselves as part of a clan first? Do you know people write about clan, 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 Somali, clan, clan, clan? But what do Somali people feel about it is a question that doesn't get asked very much, um, and especially women. So, yeah, I, I just, I I think we need new words, and we need better yeah. words, and we need to be the is ones. Is that the name of your next book? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need new words. Yeah, I think we need new words. I think the name of my next book is Nanjala Goes on Holiday. Nanjala Goes on Holiday. So, I mean, you also talk about images. And, and I think I have to say, but there's a few close contenders, but I think A Thousand Words is my favorite essay, potentially. Because you talk about sort of the idea of images as a window to these communities that is guarded by gatekeepers. It's the person who takes the image their gaze it's the photo editor that chooses to plaster the image across the front page with a certain headline and these things stick you know but it, what what it made me think about wasn't just images it's i think storytelling in general is very it's a it's a very small closed space and there is definitely an overarching view of who gets to be the voice of authority right we have that in journalism. We have that with these Africa analysts on Twitter. So how do we begin reclaiming? I know the Africa analysts on Twitter. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. How do we begin reclaiming the narrative? And how do we also, how do we also say no? You know, I, I, I sort of refuse the narrative that you're imposing on me yeah. as an outsider. You know, I feel like maybe this question is better for you because you've just kind of had this experience, you know, writing about a revolution at a time when people wanted it to be a war. And what I loved mm. about how you, you yourself and a lot of other Sudanese journalists did is you stood guard over the story and you said, this is not a war. And if there is violence, it is violence that is being exacted on people who have a very clear political demand. And what it's, it's to me, it's the latest example of African communities. And I would say subaltern communities. I'd say this is also happening in Latin America saying, no, we have a right to our stories and we have a right to our stories to being told in, in certain terms. Um, a Thousand Words is, what again, one of the essays where there is no clear conclusion. It's really more just an articulation of a series of observations. And the reason why is that I think that this is an evolving 
and it, people are constantly sort of trying to push these things and trying to do better. We we have more Africans being invited into newsrooms, being invited into wire services, and then they have, but then they have to operate with the logic that's already embedded in there. Then they also have to become part of, you know, telling the stories in a very specific way. Last week, I saw this article about the war in Ethiopia, and it was characterized as an ethnic conflict. It's in the big newspaper, and they said the Tigrayans are fighting the Oromo people, X, Y, Z, and then there's this whole story about the Tigrayans. And I was like, okay, I'm not an Ethiopia, quote-unquote, expert, <laughs> but even I know this is a political conflict. The Tigrayans mm-hmm. that you're talking about are villages in small, literally, literally in small hill hillside villages who have to walk, you know, four hours, three hours to find water. What beef do they have with other villages? Like, what beef do they have with other villages in Oromia? They don't. This is a political thing. And so, yeah, I feel like we're getting better at being clear about our demands and being clear about protecting our stories. But we're not there yet. And, and there's I mean, it's do. funny because if it wasn't for visa restrictions on foreign journalists at times of extreme state crackdown, we wouldn't. They would fly in the first white man to cover it. And, and it was funny because when Bashir stepped down and um, they opened foreign news visas, it was just an influx of, of European and American reporters. But you should have seen how all the Sudanese people are like, finally, <laughs> we have the media coverage we deserve. And I'm like, OK, well, thanks. I mean, Cheers. I've just <laughs> I'll been just here for here. three years, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'll just I'll go through a couple of more questions that I have before we move on to the audience. You know, one thing that I loved is that you write without judgment, which I think every writer should sort of aspire towards, you know, when when observing and when looking at different cultures is really just reserving judgment. You know, even if if there is a moral question, a question of morality, how do you how did you end up doing that? How did you did you were you able to remove judgment when you were talking about Fortress Europe, when you were talking about how geopolitics has has led to so much suffering? Was there a conscious withholding? No, I, it wasn't a con- I thought I was very tough on Fortress Europe, actually. But what I, it, it really came from going. If I had written that essay about Palermo... I mean, you were tough, but it was sort of facts. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, okay. it was fact, fact, factual rather than yeah. look at how horrible they treat people. And, and that, I think, comes from being an academic and being a writer and working in journalism and realizing how important that is to give people space to come to their own conclusions. But the thing is, if I hadn't gone to Palermo, I might have written a completely different essay. But I was there and I saw the tension. Like I went up to the mayor and I asked him, what do you think about, you know, the Italian government? And he didn't, he didn't skip a beat. He said, I think in 50 years, Europe is going to face charges for crimes against humanity for what is happening in the Mediterranean Sea. And I needed, I needed a second because I had also just been getting this narrative of you know, Salvini and Rome and da 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 And here's a person who has political power who is saying something different. 
And um, mm. I think it, it, it really, for me, was uh, writing all of these stories from having been there as opposed to deducing them from a more abstract place and meeting real people who are, uh, who are trying to find better ways of doing things. But it, I, I, I trust my readers. Uh, whenever I write, I try to trust my readers and I try to trust people to rise to the challenge that is implicit in the writing, which is that human beings are complicated and mm -hmm. we have to allow ourselves space for complexity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm going to go to the audience now. I had a couple of more, but you know, for the greater good, I will, I will step back. So the first question is how do we make academia a more welcoming place for people of color? Oh, child, if I knew that <laughs> would still be, be there, that, I would still be there. That would be the next book. Yeah. I don't know. Academia was a very hostile space for me. Very hostile. And I am one of those black women who felt that she was pushed out. And it was because you're just not seen. You're just not seen. You're just not, unless you can make yourself. I mean, what is it that there's like 20, the first black British history professor was appointed last year or year before last. Like, this, the numbers are crazy. And, and I have done my best academic work outside of the academy because I had space to have this intellectual freedom and curiosity without being diminished and without being sort of, you're doing too much, dial it back and, and things like that. But I don't know the simple answer to this. I'm happy to defer to people who are more, who have thought about it more systemically. But, you know, certainly from my perspective, it's a huge problem, still remains a huge problem. So another question is, after, coronavi after coronavirus, will inequality get worse and only the super privileged be able to travel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <great. laughs> no. <laughs> yes, because because we haven't done anything to unravel the structures. It's just we've just hit pause, but we haven't actually undone the structures. The next layer is going to be mandatory corona tests. And you already have like countries that have mandatory uh, self-quarantine, right? So if you come to London, you have to spend two weeks in isolation. Who can afford to rent out a room for two weeks just to be indoors for two weeks and then start to do your business, right? But it's only countries like New Zealand and cities like Barcelona. Actually, I think all of Spain was, did this and South Korea who said, this is a public good. We're going to pay for it. That if you travel wow. here, we will pay for your isolation. We will pay for you to be able to come and travel here safely. But most countries haven't done that. And because the virus is still very active, I think it's just going to make inequality, if we're not intentional about addressing it, it is going to deepen. And people have lost work and people have lost, you know, study opportunities. And unless governments start to think about this as a public crisis that deserves a much more, a much deeper public response, 
it's just going to deepen the inequalities that already exist. Mm. Just entrench, mm-hmm. entrench the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our next question is, is there a meaningful difference in traveling as, for instance, an African versus an African-American? Why did you choose to frame the book as traveling while black? Relatedly, do you think race is more impactful or sweeping identity as compared to, for instance, gender? I am not a black person or a woman person. I am both. And I, I, I think it's really important the, 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 the framework of intersectionality with, you know, Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw and, um, Angela Davis is we don't, we don't, and black women, you don't get to pick that at this moment, I am just black. And in this moment, I am just a woman. You're, you're always both. And I don't think that there's one that's worse or better or easier. And in fact, there's a third one for me because I'm also African. And, you know, you know this, Yusra, like, you're, it's, it's never either or. It's always everything at the same time. So I, I don't think there's a hierarchy, but I don't think there's a way of, of parsing through that. And the first part of the question was, was about what? What was the first part? Meaningful difference in traveling as an African versus an African-American. I think there's a qualitative difference. And the qualitative difference, I know, I'll tell you why I know there's a qualitative difference is I have this weird accent. I pick accents very easily. So I know I have, I know that it's there. I know that it's, it's happening. And I was in Togo and everybody in Togo would hear me speak and assume that I was American. American, American, American. And yeah. the... It's the international accent. It's monopolized by the Americans. <laughs> it's monopolized yeah. by the idea. You're, you're black and you have an accent. You must be American. There's nothing in yeah, between. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no, you know, international school. No, that's what you are. And um, when it emerges in certain contexts that you're not American, then there is there's a double take. And the other piece of the puzzle is that the American passport, just the passport, has so much privilege attached to it. People see an American passport in a lot of places in the world and completely changes their demeanor at the embassy, at the, at, at the airport, at whatever. So that is not a statement to say that African-Americans don't experience you know, racism or any of the other complications that I point out in the book. But when you're talking about passports, and you're talking about passport privilege, and we're talking about the day-to-day interactions that become easier, dealing with the police, dealing with, imagine you're in a foreign country and you have to deal with the cops. Would you rather deal with the cops with a Kenyan passport or with an American passport? That matters. The cachet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It matters. And, and, and I think it's, it's disingenuous to pretend that it doesn't. Next question is, could you comment on how the press and the West and Far East refer to African issues more often than not as ethnic tribal, while Western or Far Eastern issues are political or national. No one speaks of the Scottish independence question as tribal, for example. It's a great example. How harmful do you think it is to continue speaking about tribes instead of nations? Well, that's chapter, I think, eight. So (laughs) that's that whole conversation. And the short answer is 
I think that ethnic communities have a sociological value. And I think that they served a purpose and as political entities. And I think that they serve a purpose in the modern sense because in a lot of countries, the state is constantly in flux. And I think this is a part of the reason why you're seeing this rise in nationalisms in the United Kingdom because the central state is in flux and people are, are trying to figure out, well, how else can I relate to a group? How else can I relate to my society? So I think they have a function. I'm not going to be one of those people who says we have to get rid of all of these, you know, ways of being and ways of belonging, just get rid of it all. Um, I think that, but I think you've hit the person who asked the question has really hit on something important. And I think I keep asking the question and in spaces like this, because I think people need to sit in the discomfort of that. How is the war, the conflict in the former Yugoslavia is political, but the genocide in Rwanda, which was happening at around the same time is ethnic, is tribal. And on paper, really, at least from a political theory perspective, it was the same thing. So there's something in there that is worth passing out. And and I hope the person who asks the question sort of keeps asking the question of the people who are doing the analysis, because it's it's an important one. Mm -hmm. Susan Gibson, who has a microfinance, microfinance and refugee background, wants to know what advice would you give to white women who want to be supportive, not just giving lip service to changing the status quo? Hmm. That's a great question. Listen more, listen better, and be willing to confront and cede your privilege and your space to people who the system would rather not see. I, I talk about this a lot in, about in the Haiti chapter, about how even if you don't claim the privilege, you still have it, right? And you're still a white woman in a context where proximity to whiteness makes a difference. The question is, what are you going to, or it results in different outcomes rather than it makes a difference. What are you going to do with that? You know, my again, one of my favorite people, favorite writers, favorite thinkers, Arundhati Roy, there is no such thing as the voiceless, only the preferably unheard. So you have to choose to hear. You have to choose, find the people who have the least voice and find the people who have the least power and hear what, be good at hearing what they're saying and, and, and giving them space to articulate their, their demands in, in their own voice and in their own terms and be willing to be uncomfortable because ceding privilege is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, this also goes obviously for communities of color where they're, you know, in terms of amplifying the marginalized communities within African countries, within countries with a, with a large black or brown population. So the next question is, the migrant crisis is fueling a wider human trafficking and slave trade that's grown exponentially the last few years. Could you comment on how we tend to present the migrant crisis purely as an economic migration problem, or in more extreme cases, a threat to security, while very rarely ignoring the criminal exploitation aspect? You just have tapped into <laughs> a vein, a deep vein. So <laughs> I'm going to try and make this brief. The problem that we have right now is the erosion 
of movement, of safe passage, driving people underground. So the problem is that it has become nearly impossible for people who don't have money and and especially money to safely travel. And the idea that people were the, 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 the false fear or the misguided fear of what's the word I'm looking for of irregular migration drove a lot of countries to raise the bar on regular migration. A lot of British people, when I tell them this, they don't understand that to get a British tourist visa with a Kenyan passport, you have to have a three-month bank statement that has more than $1,000 in it. You have to have proof that you own property in a city where only 2% of people have mortgages. You have to have proof that you're of a flight ticket that you're going and you're coming back. If you are single the bar, bar is even higher. So you could have all of these things and they still say, well, you're a threat. So you, you like, and, mm. and, the, but then if you you've look, you've got so, no man, you've got no you've man got no to man. keep you in check. You're going to come, you know, you're going to come here and corrupt the morals of our men, whatever. But the construct, the idea is that we have, there was this weird threat of invasion of people from, you know, poor countries and we have to make the bar high and higher and higher and higher. That drives people underground. Because what you don't want, what you want is people to arrive safely. And you can make those determinations that, you know, you didn't, this is illegal, this is whatever, da, 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 and then return them safely. But what has happened is that fear of invasion has become the boogeyman. And so the wall is getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and driving more and more and more and more people underground. So... Part of the problem that you're articulating is the fact that we have a whole body of law that protects people who are seeking asylum and refugee claims. Refugee law is one of the, the most well-developed bodies of law. And almost every country in the world, well, a lot of countries in Asia aren't, but a huge number of countries in the world have signed all of these treaties and are part of this practice of refugee protection the refugee convention and the unhcr convention and because it's so well developed they can't and nobody wants to look like an idiot or nobody wants to look uh, i had another word in mind but i don't know what the position on swearing is nobody wants to look like a bad person (laughs) nobody wants to (laughs) withdraw so what do they do they make the definition of who can claim asylum narrower and narrower and narrower. So everybody who is, they're they're being called economic migrants so that they don't qualify for asylum. We're being, this conversation is being framed in this way because people who have asylum, there is a right to seek asylum that all of these countries have signed up for. So that is the tension that's playing out here that countries want rich countries especially want the definition of refugee and asylum seeker to be so narrow. Trump last year, I think the United States admitted only 5,000 refugees from a previous practice of admitting 80,000, 90,000, right? They want to make this bucket really small. So everybody who is not running away from a war is an economic migrant and you don't deserve to be here. But there are so many people who have written amazing books about this. Um, there's a great book I can recommend by Reese Jones called Violent Borders that explores all of this stuff. 
And there's a lot of people who are working in refugee protection who especially are saying, hang on a second. What is causing this uptick in human trafficking? Is it the, the perverse, it's a perverse consequence of trying to reduce demand for refugee protection? Yeah, so, we, so we're already at time, but we'll ask the last few questions. Um, so the next one is, do you think Kenyans now see themselves as, a, as Kenyan first, or do they still consider their tribal identity as more important? I think that there are 47 million people in Kenya, and I think that there are therefore 47 million experiences of identity. I think that... We have had a very traumatic experience. The, the construction of the colonial state is a, has, was a traumatic experience. And it's not ancient history. There are many people who are alive today who lived through the worst of you know, British colonialism in Kenya. And so I think that when your state is born through such trauma, there's always going to be tension and there's always going to be friction and pushback. And so where we are as a country is that uh, the, the tensions are usually abused for political advantage and identities get weaponized and identities get used in, in perverse ways. And that, there, like I said, there, there's a generational tension. There's a lot of young people who want there to be a different way of being Kenyan. And I write about this in my first book, that there's a lot of momentum for a different way of identity of defining your national identity, but it's it's a very much a two steps forward, one step back situation. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we're wrapping up now. So the last question I'm going to ask is, what's next? <gasps> I'm going on holiday. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Silent uh, retreat. Silent <laughs> retreat. You know that the, the books they came out the two my my two books came out within a two year period and people were like oh you wrote a book in two years no i wrote a book in 10 years it's just that it was published they were published you know, <laughs> compiled over two years yeah but this is a 10 year arc so yeah. it's time to take another maybe it's time to take another 10 year arc and and see the world perfect my french get rid of my weird french academic accent I feel like that's really that's really plaguing you. I think you need to let it go. I, just, it's no, okay. I, need, I need to conquer this. I need to conquer this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nanjala. It was so amazing to chat. Um, thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting us. And you can all get a copy of the book with an Intelligence Squared discount via the link in the chat tab on the right side of the screen. You will enjoy it, I can assure you. If you've enjoyed this chat, you will definitely enjoy the book. Thank you so much, everyone. It was so great to speak 